I want to say that it is a, a great privilege once again to be among you, to, uh, to worship our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, honestly, I could just sit back there and listen to you all sing uh, all night long. Uh, what, a, what a great encouragement it was uh, for me to hear, to hear you singing with such enthusiasm and, and really with such expertness and, and love. It, um, yeah, it uh, was a, a tremendous blessing. Thank you. Thank you for coming out tonight to sing praises, to hear uh, the Word of God proclaimed. Uh, the title of the message is God's Providence and Our Patience. And I think some of the prayer requests make this message or suggest to me that this message uh, is timely and perhaps in the lives of God's people it's always a timely message. We are in Genesis chapter 39. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 23. Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 23, where we're going to only consider just a portion of the account that we have in Scripture of Joseph's story. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about after that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned, in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife." How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. 
And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me. His anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, thank you for your word of truth the truth that is in Jesus Christ, the word of our salvation. We praise you and rejoice in you. We ask you tonight, our God, as we have gathered to worship you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we whom you have called out by the preaching of the gospel and the renewing and cleansing of the Holy Spirit, we who have gathered together to worship you in spirit and in truth and to offer up to you sacrifices of praise and of thanksgiving through Jesus Christ made acceptable by him, we ask you to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Open the eyes of our heart that we may know what is the hope of your calling in Christ, what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of your power toward us who believe. We love you, O our God, and praise you. Our eyes are upon you, for we do not know what to do. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. When we speak of God's providence, we are referring to the manner in which he governs his creation, in which he governs his creation to bring to pass his eternal decrees. So we read in chapter 5, paragraph 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, quote, God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things 
from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And I'm sure you all got that on my first reading of it. This is a theologically dense and beautiful and profound statement, though like all such statements, it tends to be general and abstract. Now my purpose tonight is twofold. First, I want to attempt to personalize God's providence using Joseph's example. And second, I want to draw from the example of God's dealing with Joseph some principles of God's providence to help us better discern and respond to God's providential dealings with each one of us. So let's first look at the context of God's providential dealings with Joseph. I think to fully apprehend the significance and meaning of God's dealings with Joseph, and not only with Joseph, but with us, we must keep before us some basic truths revealed by God, about God, in the preceding chapters of Genesis. So I have five or six of these, so let me just read them. Here is the essential context for understanding God's providential dealings with Joseph and with us. These are truths taken from the earlier chapters in Genesis. First, God is absolute, self-contained, self-existing, self-aware, and completely independent. And I get that from the first line in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Second, this God created all things out of nothing into nothing. The creator-creature distinction is fundamental to all Christian thinking. There are two inferences that we draw from this fact, the creator-creature distinction, that shape our understanding of reality. That's what we're talking about, the way things are. These two inferences from the creator-creature distinction shape our thinking and our understanding about reality. One, God is original and independent. And we are derivative and dependent. God is original and independent. We are derivative and dependent upon God for everything. The second inference is this. All facts are created facts. I'm going to let that sink in for a moment. All facts are created facts and reveal the glory of God. The second inference means that History and all that happens in history 
History and all that happens in history is a created fact that is governed and controlled by God. Third, therefore, since God created all things, ordains all things, rules over all things, we can know that the world in which we live in is rational and not irrational. What I mean by rational is this. There are no mysteries, no uncertainties, no unknowns, and no surprises to God. Nothing is unpredictable or unexpected to Him. And we can have true, though not exhaustive, knowledge of who God is and His creation. Fourth, Adam's sin plunged all mankind into darkness and the corruption of sin and death. That means that all men are alienated from God and in principle absolutely opposed to Him, to His Christ, and to His Word. All men are constantly engaged in suppressing the truth of God. Fifth, in response to Adam's sin, God declared to Satan his plan to save for himself out of Adam's fallen race a people for his own glory. That's Genesis 3.15, right? The seed of the woman would crush the seed or the head of the serpent. Mankind, therefore, is divided into two groups. The seed of the woman who Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16 is Jesus Christ and those who belong to him through faith and the seed of the serpent. So we have this basic division of mankind into two groups, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is the most fundamental division that is traced throughout the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Six, God's covenants with Noah and with Abraham and affirmed with Isaac and Jacob are the further unveiling and the means of advancing God's plan of salvation, which point to and culminate in our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, seven, the inspired narratives we are given of the lives of men like Joseph are God's testimonies to us of who he is and how he works in the lives of his people to accomplish his purposes in salvation and in judgment. So those seven background truths underlie all that's preceded what we are reading or what I've read to us from Genesis 39. Let's look now specifically at some of the features of chapter 39 and of God's providential dealings with Joseph. I want to focus on three principles of God's providence drawn from the account of the testimony of God's dealings with Joseph in chapter 39. All three principles 
assume the fundamental truths laid down in the earlier chapters of Genesis, which I have just summarized for us. The absolute, self-existing, and self-contained God who created all things, ordained all things, rules over all things, that God is working in his creation to accomplish his purpose in Jesus Christ to redeem for himself from Adam's fallen race a people for his own glory. The Apostle Paul expresses that same reality in this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, where he says that in this dispensation, God is busily engaged in reuniting reuniting, summing up all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. First principle, God accomplishes his will for us in ways we cannot predict, would not choose for ourselves, do not understand, and do not like, perhaps. That's the first principle I draw from chapter 39. God accomplishes his will for us in ways we cannot predict, would not choose for ourselves, do not understand, and even do not like. Look at verse 1. Moses writes, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Here's the question. How did Joseph get to this place? And the answer is, his brothers, after plotting to kill him and then throwing him in a dry well to die of starvation or dehydration landed upon the brilliant idea of selling him into slavery. Why were his brothers so incensed against him that they wanted to kill him? Well, there were two dreams that God gave Joseph, you remember? The one about the sheaves of his brother bowing down to Joseph's sheaf, And then the dream about the sun, moon, and the 11 stars bowing down to Joseph. Those two dreams. And, as we know, not just dreams, not just the kinds of dreams that you and I have, but revelatory dreams, right? Where God is revealing to Joseph his plan and purpose for him. And I thought about it this way. If If we were to write a script about how God fulfilled the promises implied in those two dreams, and and there are promises implied in those two dreams, aren't there? That God was going to exalt Joseph, and that his family would bow down to him because of his great power and his magnificence. So if you and I were to write the script about how God fulfilled those promises implied in those two dreams, I suspect our story would be very different from what actually happened. But God's way 
of fulfilling his will for Joseph. In other words, his providence involved his brothers trying to kill him, throwing him into a dry well, and then selling him into slavery in Egypt. And as we read in chapter 39, God is not yet done with Joseph, is he? In chapter 39, we see that Joseph's estate grows worse still because of the unrestrained lust of Potiphar's wife. Joseph ends up being unjustly accused and thrown into prison. So the movement overall in chapter 39 is a downward spiral, right? From slavery now to disgraced prisoner. The way God fulfills his promise to exalt Joseph, which is where all this is heading. And we know this is we know that's where it's heading, right? But the way he goes about fulfilling it is through the evil of Joseph's brothers trying to kill him. Joseph's cruel enslavement, and finally, his unjust imprisonment. There are, in the Scriptures, many other examples of God's providential dealings with His children that that are similar, right? You remember what happened to David after Samuel anointed him, and all that he went through. And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ is the preeminent example that proves the principle that God accomplishes His will for us in ways we cannot predict, in ways that we would not choose for ourselves, in ways that we do not understand, and indeed even in ways we do not like. What does the author of Hebrews say about our Lord Jesus Christ when it came to his contemplation of the cross? He says, who for the joy set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross, despising the shame. Which is a beautiful illustration of this principle, isn't it? Second principle. God's dealings with us are personal and intimate, yet they are designed to further his universal plan of salvation. God's dealings with us are personal and intimate. They're individual, right? Yet, they are designed to further his universal plan of salvation. So, we have the the problem of the particular and the universal solved in the absolute God. For me, this is an exceedingly precious truth. God deals with particular people in personal and unique ways. He deals with particular people in personal and unique ways that have a universal impact in promoting His plan of salvation. As with Noah, and I mean, that's why we have those accounts, right? Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, 
So now with Joseph, God deals with his children personally, intimately, and in the most extraordinary ways to accomplish his will and purpose for them in Christ. And yet, at the same time, his personal dealings with particular people are also designed to promote his universal purpose in salvation. This goes both for believers and for unbelievers. For example, God said to Pharaoh, quote, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. That's Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, which Paul picks up in Romans chapter 9, verse 17. Now, in Joseph's case, for example, we read this in Psalm 105, verses 16 through 19. Quote, And God called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, they afflicted his feet with feathers. With fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. So all that we read about in chapter 37 and 39 and following is the fulfillment of God's purpose and his declaration that there was going to be a famine on the land, and here is how he was going to address it. He arranged to have his brothers sell him into slavery and then imprison him in Potiphar's prison. Joseph himself came to understand this principle when he declared to his brothers... As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You see, he, he came to grasp the reality that God's intimate personal dealings with him yet had an impact on God's universal plan of salvation. It's a marvelous truth, beloved. Paul recognizes this same principle. In other words, that God's dealings with us are personal and intimate, yet they are designed to further his universal plan of salvation when he admonishes the Roman Christians, and this is Romans 14, verses 7 through 8, quote, For not one of us lives for himself. And not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. So, what happens to us by God's providence, according to his good pleasure, has larger implications beyond our own lives. 
Implications aimed at achieving the glory of God in the salvation of his people. Let me ask you, does that help you understand your present circumstances better? Third principle. God is with us to bless us and sustain us in the hard circumstances in which he himself places us. God is with us to bless us and sustain us in the hard circumstances in which he himself places us. Look at verse 2. Now, this is interesting. Notice the juxtaposition here. Verse 1, Joseph's on his way to Egypt. He gets bought by Potiphar. He's enslaved. But look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Let that sink in. All this happened. He's torn from his family. He's almost killed by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. And then the next thing that the Spirit inspires Moses to write is verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And for the next four verses, all we read about is how much God blessed Joseph there. But notice also, where he says, where is, oh, verse 21. He gets thrown into prison, unjustly accused. There he is in prison, and what does it say in verse 21? But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. By God's providence, Joseph is almost killed by his brothers and sold into slavery. Yet God was with him to bless and prosper him as a slave. By God's providence, Joseph was falsely accused and thrown into prison. Yet God was with him to bless and prosper him as a prisoner. Now let me ask you. Are Joseph's circumstances whether as a slave or as a prisoner, what Joseph himself would desire. I mean, didn't he want to go back home to his family? There's the principle. We should look for and be comforted by God's blessing, His manifest presence in our hard, painful, uncontrollable circumstances instead of longing for and grieving over what was and is no longer. And I don't mean for that to sound hard. But the lesson is important so that God's people, so that we are not destroyed by, by grief or sorrow so that we are not distracted and miss God's purposes because we are looking back or we are looking to something that we desire and not what God is doing now in our lives. Does that make sense? Paul testifies to the operation of this principle in his own life from Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, quote, I have learned to be content 
in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And how does he finish that? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The truth of this principle enables us to rejoice in the Lord always, to be thankful in everything, to persevere under trials, to pray without ceasing, and to be content in every circumstance in which God sovereignly places us. Let me close with with two points. First, these three principles of God's providence, and and I wanted wanted to give them in that way, they are part of the biblical framework through which we must learn to interpret and respond to our circumstances. I mean, this is about theologically and doctrinally how we interpret the reality of this world in which we are living now and how we respond, whether in obedience to God or not. So these three principles, in in my view, are an essential part of a biblical framework that enables us to properly interpret and rightly respond to our circumstances, especially hard and difficult and confusing and incomprehensible and seemingly meaningless circumstances. Second, complementing these three principles of God's providence, I want to give us a principle of patience, because that, that's the That's the reciprocal relationship, right? God's providence, but our response. So God's providence and our patience. There is a principle of patience we can derive from Joseph's example and apply to our own lives. Here it is. It is in submitting to God in every circumstance trusting in him, fearing him, and walking in obedience to his word, that his purposes for us, that his purposes for us and for the salvation of his people are accomplished in us and through us for his glory and our joy. It is in submitting to him that that happens. And we see that, don't we, in the example of Joseph? Let me, let me show you kind of a, a, a poignant example of patience. Beginning at verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. 
But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? All right, here's Joseph. His, his brother's tried to kill him, they threw him in a well, they sold him into slavery, he's now a slave. And did you hear what he said in response to the temptation? And He's a handsome guy. And he's in his 20s. And this woman keeps coming after him. And, and, he, and he does a couple of things. He, he expresses gratitude to Potiphar for the authority that he's vested in him. He recognizes and affirms the sanctity of marriage, and he recognizes that if he were to commit fornication with this woman, he would be sinning against his God. That's patience, beloved, is it not? in a very hard circumstance. You see, Joseph never departed from faith in God throughout all of this that happened. He did not allow anger, bitterness, resentment, confusion, sorrow, or lust to lead him away from his love for God and obedience to his word. He kept his integrity and walked before God uprightly and blamelessly in the most excruciating, confusing, and inexplicable circumstances that I suppose a young man may ever travel through. David expresses the operation of this principle of patience in hard times when he prays this prayer in Psalm 25, verses 20 and 21. It's a great prayer. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you, O my God. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word, for revealing the the greatness of your name, the glory of your name, for showing us how it is you deal with us as your children, for giving us the truth on the basis of which we can walk through painful, difficult, grievous, sorrowful times, faithfully trusting in you, knowing that the day of exaltation is coming. Because we too have promises, and our promises are exceedingly, infinitely greater than the promise you made to exalt Joseph to second in command of Egypt.
So, Father, grant us grace and patience to trust you, to yield to you, to walk in our integrity according to your word, that your eternal purpose for us and for your people, for the glory of your name may be fully accomplished in our lives. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.